निरंजनम नित्यम अनंत रूपम भक्तानुकंपाधृत विग्रहम वै ईशावतारम परमेशमिड्यम तंग्राम कृष्णम शिरसानमाम जननीम सारदा देवी राम कृष्णम जगत गुरु पाद पद्मी तयो श्रुवा प्रणमा मुहुर्मुहु नम श्रीयतिराजा विवेकानंदसूर सच्चिदुखस्वूपा स्वामीनेतापहारिणे So today, as we have already uh, mentioned in the last class, uh, this fourth chapter is something which uh, is comparatively short chapter, and we will today uh, have an overview of the entire chapter uh, before we conclude it and proceed to the next chapter. So the fourth chapter, that what is duty? So. just to have an overview what is duty the very first line uh, with which that lecture starts is it is necessary in the study of karma yoga to know what duty is so as when we were studying it we had a very preliminary discussion that what duty is that why as a human being we need to have a sense of duty so at the very beginning we try to understand the etymological meaning of the word religion the word religion came from the latin word religare the religare means to bind fast to integrate uh dharma the word dharma also in certain aspects have the very same meaning this dharma is a very very uh pervasive word it has many dimensions of understanding in one of its dimension it means धारयते इति धर्म दैट विच होल्ड्स अस बाइंड्स अस इंटीग्रेट्स अस इट्स ऑलमोस्ट सिनोनिमस टू द वर्ड रिलीजियन इन दिस सेंस सो दस प्राइमरीली वी कैन डिफाइन ड्यूटी एज एन एक्शन इम्पेल्ड बाय द मॉरल ऑब्लिगेशंस व्हिच एंटल्स टू सर्टेन एक्सटेंट सेल्फ सैक्रिफाइस सो व्हाई द क्वेश्चन ऑफ सेल्फ सैक्रिफाइस कम्स इनटू पिक्चर while discussing as you may remember we took a very particular example of the forest the rule of the jungle that in the jungle you will find the animals are bound by instinct they need not have any sense of moral obligation they don't have they have been created in such a way the creator has created in them in such a way 
that the instinct is the thing by which they are bound and that instinct ensures, entails the balance in the environment. As we were giving the example, a lion catches its prey, it, is, it feeds on it. And when it is satiated, it will never look back at its prey. Then the scavengers of the forest, they were hiding. Now they come to the picture. They will, the scavengers, the jackals, the howls, the jackals. So they come and they just have their share. And that's why they are called the scavengers. They clean off whatever is left over by the lion, they clean off. That's why they're the scavengers. So once they are satiated, it's not that everything is finished, still something is remaining. You'll find at last the remains of the carcass, the remains of that prey, uh, which has already started rotting. Now that is being fed by, that is fed by the vulture sitting on the branch of the tree. They're also waiting. They know that once the scavengers are satiated, it's their turn. So everyone gets their share. And we find this wonderful balance is maintained in the forest, in the nature. But as a human being, we have an innate tendency to hold. We go to the market, we go to the, for shopping and find that the seasonal fruit is very cheap. And we don't know that whether it is going to uh, continue, the price is going to continue for the next week. So we buy a lot. We purchase the entire crate and we cannot have it in one go. So whatever uh, we feel like having, after that the remaining is there in that wonderful machine which we have discovered, the refrigerator, that electric, electric gadget. In that we keep it. Okay, let it be there so I can have it in future. So this question of holding comes with the human beings. And it's good to a certain extent because it is because of the holding you can think of sustaining the family, sustaining the society, the wealth is required. That when the drought is there, I have this, what I have just saved, that I can use up. But what happens with the human beings, we find that this holding becomes an OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. What is, an, what is OCD? You go to the doctor, that anything which is necessary, when you overdo it, do without beyond the purpose, that becomes your OCD. It becomes compulsion. You forgot the necessity. So holding becomes an obsession with the human society. It is an obsessive compulsive disorder. And it is such a disorder, you will find what has happened. The 99% of the wealth, the world's wealth, is with the 1% of the population. And that creates turmoil in the society, all sorts of disbalances. The society becomes carcinogenic, like the cancer cells, which takes food from the blood. It is supposed to just grow. This, all the cells are supposed to grow in a particular rate to maintaining a harmony with the entire body. The hands won't start growing faster than the other legs or uh, your, uh, what do you say, the, the thoracic region or whatever the entire body. It has a particular rate with which it is growing. Now, these cancer cells, what they do, 
they become, they just start hoarding. They just take more food from the blood and they start multiplying beyond the, beyond the rate in which they're supposed to, so that the harmony is mentioned in the body. They just go on multiplying. They take food and just go on multiplying. And that's what this is almost like the similar behavior of this hoarding. And then at last what happens, this carcinogenic cells forms a tumor and at last it results in the death of the person. And at last these carcinogenic cells are also going to die with the person, they are not going to live. And that's what happens with the human society because of the hoarding, it has become carcinogenic with this consumerism culture. So we find now the government has to insert in the balance of the society by enforcing certain laws, rules, taxation, so that, that what I am not going to do willfully, it, it is being imposed upon us in the forms of commandments, laws. And there's a law is a thing now which is helping us to maintain our integrity. It binds us, it integrates us. So now you will find that whenever we hear of religion, it is a bundle of do's and don'ts, vidhis and nishedas. And sometimes we feel that uh, why to bind us with all those vidhis and nishedas? Actually, as our instinct is poor, in the animal that instinct is designed in such a way that it maintains the balance. For us, it's not that. Intellect has taken its place. So now we have to use those commandments to bind us. Otherwise we disintegrate, the society disintegrates. So all those bindings to certain extent entail self-sacrifice that I won't hold. I will hold only that much which is necessary. Remaining is there to share with others. So here the question of self-sacrifice comes. So that's why the real definition of duty is the moral obligations which entails to a certain extent self-sacrifice. So now the question comes that that's the thing which religion was doing for ages, for ages together. And it was quite okay. Why? We were all geographically isolated. As per the geographical location, the culture which has developed, it was quite good to bind that society with particular do's and don'ts, which in no way uh, was something affecting the others because we are all geographically isolated. But now the things have changed. We find that we cannot avoid it. However, we may try. The world scenario is such that we, that we find there's an intermingling of cultures. And then one thing we have become very much aware of, once physically we are all together, we find that we actually, even as for the do's and don'ts are concerned, which has been uh, dictated by the religion, they, they're so varied. So now the question comes, what's my duty? Such so, so X, the religion X says, this is your duty. The religion Y says, this is your duty. And then the, as if we find that that is as if a confrontation between our sense of obligation. So is the duty term, do you have some any universal uh, uh, meaning? 
So that's what the Swami Vivekananda is next indicating. The term duty, like every other universal abstract term, is impossible clearly to define. We can only get an idea of, its, of it by knowing its practical operations and results. So these practical operations and results, this actually speaks of the universal truth behind all the so-called moral obligations. It's not by the dictum itself. What are the practical operations? How I have to operate it on it, based on it? And what's the result which accrues? So this practical operation speaks of our choice. In the last, uh, when the class, we, uh, when we were discussing, we just were mentioning that. What's that? The practical operation actually speaks of our choice. That whenever we are supposed to do something, there are various options. We may do it. We may not do it. And even if we do it, we can do it in various ways. In Sanskrit, it is being indicated as kartum, akartum, anyatha kartum. I may do it. I may not do it. Even if I do it, I may do it in a different way. So I have the choice. But where is uh, the absolute truth then? If I, can, if I have the choice to do anything in any way, the absolute truth is, yes, I have the choice to do a certain thing, but the result that accrues, I have no hand over it. As Sri Ramakrishna, when he was asked, is there anything called absolute truth? Now, in, in those days, in the time of Ramakrishna, when the science, when the young Bengal was coming with the science background and asking Ramakrishna, is there an absolute truth? They had in their mind so many varied opinions. And when the science itself has started saying that the so-called the dictums of religion are all the inventions of the fertile brain of the human being, most probably uh, with some vested interest, they have all been so-called imposed on the human society. They're, they all have some relative uh, applications. They're, they're, in absolute, there is no truth as such. Otherwise, how can it be so varied? So when such a question was placed in front of Ramakrishna, a realized soul you will find has an answer and that answer is very simple. It's very profound and very simple. Ramakrishna immediately is asserting, yes, there is something called absolute truth. And what's the absolute truth? He's not speaking of God. The one who is all 24 hours, always in that God intoxication. But when he has to deal with the world, he knows that how to communicate because they cannot relate to his consciousness. So he's coming down to the level of the consciousness of the people and giving a very simple example. What he's saying, if you eat chili, you are bound to have the burning sensation. Now you may say that what's the absolute truth in it? The absolute truth is being explained wonderfully by this sentence. That when you're having your meals, most probably in a separate plate, along with the salad, some Chili has been kept. And now it's your choice that you may opt to have it, you may not have it. But I will have the chili, but I don't like, like that burning sensation. I won't have that burning sensation. Is it ever going to happen? No. So whether I take the chili or not, it's my option. But once I take it, the result that is going to happen is something fixed. I have no hand over it. And that's what Ramakrishna is indicating as the absolute truth. 
in our scriptures, in the words of the scriptures, they say the absolute reality, which is beyond the purview of our perception, finds expression as Shakti. What we perceive in this world, ultimately everything can be boiled down to energy. Even the matter which you see, you know, they're the mod as a student of the modern science, you all know that energy and matter is interconvertible. Even in a small speck of matter, huge energy is there behind it. It is the energy condensed as matter. Everything can be resolved back to energy. That's something we can perceive. So the absolute reality, which is beyond our perception, when comes in the purview of our perceptions, finds expression as Shakti. The absolute reality has been nomenclatured with the word Om. That Om finds expression as Rim, Rim the Shakti. And that Shakti again is not chaotic. If it was chaotic, creation would have never been possible. Just think of the atom bomb. When for the first time the atom bomb, that nuclear explosion happened, it was uncontrolled fission. The, and it, it just simply destroyed the two cities. The, we all know that. But when that same nuclear reaction, this reaction is controlled, you control it in a nuclear reactor. Then that same energy which is destroyed can be used for generating electricity, which can be used for, in, used in a very productive way. So, if it is an unchaotic, it is a chaotic energy, creation is never possible. So the energy which we find is finding expression in this universe. It always finds expression as certain laws. It is always within the rhythm. The word rhythm in English, you will find very interesting. If you just try to find the etymology of words, at last you will find it is in Sanskrit, many words. Just see the English word ma mother, Sanskrit mata, so similar, mata, mother, pita, father, swasa, sister, brata, brother. We can go on giving examples. There are in this almost all the words you will find has that Sanskrit uh, etymology. At last you can find the root there. So here in the word rhythm, if you want to find the root, it came from the Sanskrit word rhythm. The word rhythm means the ultimate reality. We will find everywhere rhythm is translated as satyam. Yes, it is not the satyam, it is not the truth in the absolute sense. The truth which is finding, the absolute truth which is finding expression in this universe as the law is rhythm. Om finds expression as rim, that rim finds expression as rhythm. And this rhythm is something which is the absolute truth, which we can perceive. How we can perceive? Just the way the gravitational law is something which is true anywhere. There's a wonderful quotation of Einstein. The most un, what is this? Uh, the most uh, unexplainable fact of the universe is that it can be explained. How can you explain? Because there's a wonderful law. I, I am not supposed to explain this universe. How, why? Because it's such so vast as a human being, I'm such a, such a small being like an ant crawling on the earth's surface. How was it possible for me to explain the universe? 
that for us it has been possible because the entire universe follows certain laws. The gravitational law is universal and that's why with accuracy the NASA scientists can send the satellite on the surface of the Mars and not only that there can be land rovers moving on the Mars surface. Why? The gravitation which is true here is true there and the law which it follows is exactly the same law which follows and through the entire universe. And now I can calculate and I can send a satellite there. So that's the rhythm, the rhythm. But generally we feel that all the so-called laws are just the physical laws. But here the religion asserts, it's not only the physical laws, the moral laws are also the laws which I cannot break. Just the way I cannot transcend, I cannot transgress gravitation. If I say I don't believe in gravitation, I'm not going to fly. That I don't believe in gravitation, I jump out from a multi-story to the top of a multi-story building and I'm not going to fly. I will crash and die. The same thing the scripture asserts that all the so-called commandments, the do's and don'ts are absolute in that sense. They fall under the rhythm, they're satyam. Why? Because there is no, there is, as far the result is concerned, you can be certain there is no choice. I may choose whether I to follow them or not, but as far as the result which they are going to accrue, it is something very fixed. They follow the rhythm. And there we find the need for the duty in our attempt to break the laws, we will break ourselves otherwise. That's why we find that Swamiji is saying in a very wonderful way, the truth does not pay homage to society, ancient or modern. Society has to pay homage to the truth or die. So thereby Swami Vivekananda is speaking by speaking of practical operations and results. The practical operation speaks of the choice and the result which we accrue as per the choice. And we find that is embedded in our being as conscience. We all have conscience. We may have various options, but there is something, the inner voice which says, don't do that way. The result which you will accrue is going to disintegrate you, is going to harm you. Do it this way. The conscience, the voice, the inner voice is there. So then, now as we find that the dictums outside cannot be the ultimate judge for our duty, the ultimate criteria for duty. Now Swamiji next refers to the dictates of conscience. He's gradually bringing the point home that what actually is duty? Can the so-called uh, the do's and don'ts, we can say it's duty? We will find that situations will come when we are in a dilemma. We don't know what to do in spite of all those do's and don'ts. So now Swamiji is saying conscience, but again, this conscience, whether this conscience itself can again define the duty? No, we will find Swami Vivekananda, though he's not using these two words, is actually speaking of two types of conscience. As we'll, in the lecture we found, one is the authoritarian conscience, which is the common conscience for the entire humankind. What's the authoritarian conscience? The conscience which develops because of the authority. A small child is born and whenever it does certain thing, the parents may applaud the child. They'll say, wow, you have done something wonderful. And immediately it registers in the child's mind, this is good. 
and for certain thing the child is reprimanded and the child immediately it registers in his mind that this is not good so what is good what is bad this is being decided by the authority the author whatever the parents the authority is saying him and this voice is getting internalized gradually the child grows go to the school the teachers also repeats the same thing constantly his the teacher is applauding for certain thing and reprimanding for certain thing and that way we find there's this this authority is getting internalized and that becomes gets converted into the conscience if we try to uh, judge the sense of duty the judge means just to understand duty with that authority and conscience again we will find that it there's there is a lot of conflicting ideas so it is actually the spiritually oriented conscience which on which our sense of duty should be uh, tagged together we will be tuned together with the tuned our sense of the spiritually oriented conscience it's not just the authority if you just best uh, try to understand with the sense of authority there also you will find varied opinions as for the nations as for the religions are concerned so it's actually the spiritually oriented conscience which swami ji is speaking of as conscience but what is spiritually oriented conscience does it solve the problem again we will find it is almost uh, what is it is very difficult first in the words of swami that why authority and conscience uh, cannot ascertain the uh, our duty let it, let us just read the, the word in the words of swami ji but what is it that makes an act a duty if a christian finds a piece of beef before him and does not eat it to save his own life or will not give it to save the life of another man he should to feel that he has not done his duty but if a hindu dares to eat that piece of beef or to give it to another hindu he is equally sure to feel that he too has not done his duty the hindu's training and education make him feel that way in the last century there were notorious band of robbers in india called thugs they thought it was their it's their duty to kill any man they could take away his money the larger the number of men they killed the better they thought they were ordinarily if a man goes out into the street and shoots down another man he is apt to feel sorry for it thinking that he has done wrong but if the very same man as a soldier in his regiment kills not one but 20 he is certain to feel glad and think that he has done his duty remarkably well therefore we see that it is not the thing done that defines a duty so based on that authority which has been internalized when you are doing the duty there can be varied duties it cannot really explain that what duty is so next swami ji comes to that spirituality oriented conscience hence it is a spiritually spiritually oriented conscience that can ascertain our the sense of duty as has been spoken of by swami ji in the words of swami ji any action that makes us go godward is a good action and is our duty any action that makes us go downward is evil and is not our duty so this entire chapter is actually what is duty to ascertain that after saying that again we will find there is some misunderstanding when we say going godward because the term god is a very quiet vague term 
for most of us the god we believe is just the tribal god that i have my god you have your god who is superior let us fight whoever wins his god is superior that's what the history of religion shows is going on for ages together so there just this fight this hatred this dissension this confusion may make us feel we are going godward then is it duty so however the term god can be quite vague so as to be interpreted variedly leading to confusions or even to dissension hatred and violence the question is can there be an universal definition of god which can be accepted by all that we have so many ideas of god but can there be an universal idea where we all agree you will find swami vivekananda has given in some other place a wonderful definition of god and we can just be assured of the fact no one can deny that what's that definition very simple definition unselfishness is god does that any religion with whatever belief of their god they may have they can say that they believe that the god is extremely selfish no one no one can say unselfishness is god the god is unselfish swami in the words of swami vivekananda very nice that what's the reason of selfishness our amness limited only to this body mind complex that this is me for god he is the creator of the entire universe his amness is pervading the entire universe so the question of selfishness never arises there why we fight why there is hatred because of the sense of separation if that sense of separation was not there even if someone harms me i cannot retaliate back in bhagavatam a wonderful example has been given to understand this lack of non violence in the one who is established in that real meaning of god what the way bhagavatam is just explaining that again with a very simple example the bhagavatam it is mentions while taking food accidentally if your tongue is bitten by your teeth you bite your tongue by your teeth whom do you blame you have been you have been extremely injured if you find if for a small child for a small child for the first time that's taking solid food and it happens it bites its own tongue and it doesn't understand out of pain it goes try to hit the mother isn't it but actually when we grow up i know that actually there is no one to be blamed whom to blame so this is the real sense of unselfishness uh, which swami ji is defining uh, is using when he is defining the term god unselfishness is god if we are established in that then we there cannot be any hatred violence dissension so based on that definition now swami ji ultimately comes to the idea of duty that and from the standpoint of such an universal definition of god duty in the words of swami vivekananda at last can be summarized as follows from a scriptures only he is quoting that paropakara parnyaya papaya parapiranam that 
That's the idea that there is, however, only one idea of duty which has been universally accepted by all mankind of all ages and sects and countries. And that has been summed up in a Sanskrit aphorism. Do not injure any being, not injuring any being is virtue, injuring any being is sin. As simple as that. Now, now we find as if we have defined duty. Yes, that duty is, should be based on that moral obligation. What's that moral obligation? I won't harm others. I will always, whatever my actions, whatever I feel is good for me, that I should do for others. Whatever I feel is unpleasant for me, I shouldn't do it for others. So that should be the sense of my duty. But now we find that, now the question is how to practice that unselfishness? And how can the spiritually oriented conscience which speaks of unselfishness, we tune to the authority and conscience. Means in our day-to-day life, I cannot simply deny the authority. The society in which I was born, the circumstances in which I was brought up, all the do's and don'ts which were taught to me, I simply cannot deny them and just say, no, that my spiritual oriented conscience is in not tuned with that and I deny that. Again, we will be creating a huge confusion in the society. So in this context, that how this authoritarian conscience and the spiritually oriented conscience can be synthesized in our, in practicing unselfishness. We have to be unselfish. And for that, that our spiritual oriented conscience, that's the thing, the voice of that spiritually oriented conscience I have to hear. But can that spiritually oriented conscience be in tune with the authority? Yes, it can be. And that has been described in the Bhagavad Gita. In the last chapter, we will find in the 18th chapter, the concept of Swabhava has been discussed in the Bhagavad Gita. And that's what Swami Vivekananda is bringing out. That how we can synthesize these two types of conscience in practicing unselfishness. And that's, let's read the words of Swamiji. The Bhagavad Gita frequently alludes to duties dependent upon birth and position in life. As per our birth, as per position in life, we as per our tendencies have been born in a particular situation. So we cannot simply deny that. It's my tendencies of my past birth has resulted in my birth in a particular circumstance. So and the, my sense of duty is bound to be dependent on my birth and position in life. Birth and position in life and in society largely determine the mental and moral attitude of individuals towards the various activities of life. It is therefore our duty to do that work which will exalt and ennoble us in accordance with the ideals and activities of the society in which we are born. So in this context, we are not bringing the exact sloka into the picture. We will find that Bhagavan is saying that as per our swabhava, we are born in any of these four castes. There are only four castes. In Bhagavan, in Gita, he's ancient. There's Brahmana, Brahmana, Kshatriya, Vaishya, and Sudra. In this world, there are no other caste, only these four castes. And God has created them. Why? 
so that the people as per the swabhava can do their can uh, do their duty and progress in the spiritual path both can be combined it's not that that your secular life has to be segregated from your spiritual life there is no watertight compartment between the secular and the spiritual if we are we know this concept of swabhava this spirit that everything becomes spiritual nothing remains secular in the words of ramakrishna our religion as we don't have the proper sense of it is just before the breakfast after breakfast i am a different person now i am a total secular being before breakfast in the morning i took i had my shower i had some separate set of clothings i wore that i went to the shrine offered flowers offered incense meditated and then when i come out have my breakfast now i have to go for my work i am a total different person that's what religion is for most of us it's just before the breakfast why because we couldn't implement that the idea of swabhava which has been spoken of in the bhagavad gita in our day to day life if you could have done then the entire spirit your life instead of becoming compartmentalized into secular and spiritual would have been spiritualized we could have spiritualized our day to day life and that's what is being spoken of here that why we are saying that all the entire world can be divided into this four caste in we just discussed brahmana doesn't mean someone who has been born as a child of a brahmana brahmana means the intellectuals you will find that certain that subsection of the human society they like to dwell throughout their life in that intellectual level they study they enter the academic field even they after the completion of their studies they continue as a professor or as a research scholar and you find a considerable portion of the our population are in that type of profession because of their liking as they like it they have gone to that type of profession and then you will find that this uh, these universities are there uh, research uh, fellowships are there that's the brahmana and then you will find the government the state government the national government they are there to provide security internal security if there is some domestic violence if some if there is some riot for that also government is there in the in the form of police to provide us the security and of course when there is international uh, conflicts they are there so they are the kshatriyas the kshatriyas who are giving us that sense of security by protecting us from all sorts of violence and invasions and the vaishya the business we need not explain the entire world of this how this, this is the national economy whatever is depends on which their national economy depends they are the vaishya all the business all this uh the, uh, this multinational firms everything speaks of the vaishya and the shudra the slave doesn't speak of someone who is serving you personally even in the society you will find that we need a particular section of the society to society to keep the society in uh, in a working condition the road should be clean there should be uh, proper sewage there should be uh, the park should be clean your uh, regular this all the garbages has to be disposed properly 
For that you will find the councils are there throughout the world. The councils are doing the work of serving the humanity. So the Shudras, we can say that to a certain extent, this, the councils, it doesn't speak actually of any hierarchy. It speaks of particular work as per my liking, as per my tendency. And when I can do that with a sense of duty and with a sense of service, it's not that yes, all those work are there to sustain me, but I sustain myself uh, and I do, uh, just not with a sense of mercenary, that just to sustain myself, I'm doing that work. And that's why in this world we find that the working hours are fixed. And so very easily we can, we will find people are saying that as per the contract, this much was the work. I'm not supposed to do anything else. And that way we find that extreme selfishness is there even in the field of work. If we could have done with a sense of service, the same work, the same work would have become our worship. So duty is doing that work with a sense of service. As you may remember, some in some uh, few classes back, we gave an example. We give the example of Goodwin, the one who wrote the lectures of Swami Vivekananda, who took the shorthand notes of Swami Vivekananda's lecture. He was actually appointed for that, and in the process of taking the notes, he became his disciple. He was so influenced by these lectures, he became his disciple, and he came with Swami Vivekananda to India to serve him. And in short time, previously the people were impressed by the Goodwin service. Very dedicatedly is to serve Swamiji. Even he used to take care of his personal needs. And then one day someone discovered that Swami Vivekananda actually remunerates him, gives him some monthly allowance. And immediately all started saying, oh, he is not a devotee, he is a paid worker. And this word at last came to the ears of Goodwin. And Goodwin's immediately the response was wonderful. He told, yes, it's true. It's true that Swamiji gives me some monthly allowance. He remunerates me. It's only because I have an old mother back there in England. I have, and she is there alone. I have came with Swamiji here and she had none is there to look after her, to sustain her. For her sustenance, I take, I do take something from Swamiji to send it to her. So that she can be sustained. But no one should think that I serve, I serve Swamiji because of that. I really love Swamiji. It's my, my dedication. It's something which pours out of my heart. That's how I serve Hariji. So I serve Swami Vivekananda. So the idea is that we are placed in the society as per liking with particular duties. We should take it as an opportunity to serve. It's not with a sense of mercenary that you pay me in return, I give you this much of work. It's an opportunity. The society has given me an opportunity to serve. I've got that chance to do it. I like to pour my heart through that service. In return, I get something because after all I have to sustain myself, but I never equate it with that. So you will find this wonderful, the idea of Swabhava is something, it has far reaching implications. The same thing, the same work you can do with a sense without any self-respect. And again, you can do with a tremendous sense of self-respect. The moment you do with a sense of service, the same work becomes the cause of your self-respect. You start respecting yourself. 
that yes, I am a productive member of the society and I am doing it with a sense of service. So that's the idea which Swamiji is bringing here when he's speaking of this wonderful concept of Swabhava. But there are again challenges in practicing Karma Yoga as per our Swabhava. The first challenge is the lack of cognitive empathy. Now we use the word empathy, but this empathy can be can be classified as affective empathy and cognitive empathy. What's it? This Swami will, Swamiji is not using these terms, but in his discussion you will find it is coming up that when I say that I have to work, uh, that uh, we have to be empathetic. And many of us will, I'm empathetic. What's there in it? What's so, so big about it? But you will find my empathy is restricted only to my family, to my kith and kin. And there is no credit for that. That is not the real empathy that has came through evolution. Even in the animal kingdom, you will find that. What that affective empathy is? That affective empathy refers to the sensations and feelings we get in response to others' emotions. It is like mirroring. This can include mirroring what the other person is feeling. Even in a small child, we find the children are playing together. One child falls and starts crying. All others starts crying. They just mirror. The mirror neurons are there to mirror. It is something which uh, has, as we evolved, we have actually imbibed those qualities. Uh, this mirroring of the other person's emotions. And we just feel stressed when we detect the other's fear and anxiety. It's not this. This affective empathy is not what Swamiji is speaking, speaking of. He's speaking of actually cognitive empathy. What is that? It is something unique to the humans. No one can do. In animals, you can have that affective empathy. You will see the lion after killing its prey is taking care of the small one of that prey. Uh, that suddenly that motherly love has started flowing. But there it is just an affective empathy. There is no such conscious decision behind it. The cognitive the empathy speaks of some conscious decision. It is called perspective taking. I have to imagine the I have to imagine from the perspective of the other person that what the other person is doing, why he is doing. Let me place him in his position and try to think of the situation. And then you will find that instead of being judgmental, you are, you are becoming sympathetic. To give a common example, it's a, uh, that a hardcore criminal was in the jail. The entire society uh, was constantly criticizing for that person for his crime. But when the interview was taken, what was revealed from that we all will find that we, instead of uh, simply reprimanding that person, criticizing that person, most probably we also will find we are becoming a bit sympathetic. What he told, that I was brought up in a situation, I was a refugee, in a refugee colony, we were all growing and this, everyone was very violent. When I was going to school, uh, on my birthday, I was went to school by wearing a wristwatch, which my father has bought me as a present, birthday gift. And some senior, seeing that wonderful watch, claimed, give it to me. When I denied, he told, if you don't give the watch, I will stab on your hand, stab on your wrist. And this child thought that he was joking. So again, he denied. And literally, he brought out a knife and was stabbed on the wrist. He was frantic. He was 
so scared he started running frantically ran from the school went back to the home in expecting that the father would first apply some first aid bandage and allow the means help him to stop the bleeding and that's what he thought father ran in a, uh, ran inside the house for when father just uh, just heard that he was having stabbed by some other student on his hand so he went inside uh, and the child thought most probably father has gone to bring some first aid instead of that the father brought a knife gave it to the child and told immediately go back and stab the one who has stabbed you and after saying that the criminal told this is the environment in which i have grown up so now you will feel now you can you say that you now you place yourself in his situation that isn't we who have been brought up in a family very nice integrated family isn't it all but it's a blessing as a child i was helpless if i was placed in that situation i also would have grown with that type of mentality so place if if we place in others position then we will find that instead of judging we also becoming sympathetic there cannot be any person whom to whom we cannot be sympathetic that's the perspective taking you take his perspective and that's the thing which is a human faculty which no other animals can do and swami ji is actually speaking of that how he is not using the term you will find he is mentioning an american think that whatever an american does is accordance with the custom of his country something which i have not mentioned here that swami ji actually is indicating in this lecture that in chicago where he used to go down the streets wearing his traditional uh, dress of a sanyasi people has to humiliate him some will pull the turban some will just uh, give him a push and that's uh, that's what swami ji faced again and again in the american society why because and then swami ji is saying very nicely that most probably he is a very wonderful person at home he is a very affectionate father but just seeing a person be different from uh, his own culture immediately that affection has gone so here he is speaking that's why that what we as a human being require is that cognitive empathy because when because of that geographical you know that uh, now that all the boundaries have all the geographical boundaries has boiled down we all are now in a hodgepodge in a cauldron with all the cultures intermingled there we will find that what's happening as per my birth as per my uh, as per the way i have been brought up my way of life apparently appears to be different from you and if i try to practice my what you say that swabhava as my as, as if i try to do my duty as per my swabhava some conflicts are bound to ensue and there this practicing of the cognitive empathy is very important otherwise we can never we can never in the present situation can never effectively work as per our swabhava we have to just simply uh, try to implement some regimented way of norm of life where my heart may not respond to it that if everyone has been regimented that this is the only way that this is the only one coat size is available in the shop everyone has to fit into it you will find that the society will lose its heart no one will feel like doing it so swabhava has to be given importance but at the same time we have to be empathetic and that empathetic should be cognitive 
the words of Swamiji and American thinks that whatever an American does is in accordance with the custom of his country is the best thing to do and that whoever does not follow his custom must be a very wicked man. A Hindu thinks that his customs are the only right ones and are the best in the world and that whosoever does not obey them must be the most wicked man living. This is quite a natural mistake which all of us are apt to make but it is very harmful. It is the cause of half of the uncharitableness found in the world. The sympathies, the sympathies of these men were limited within the range of their own language and their own fashion of dress. So the ill effects that ensue from the lack of cognitive empathy is much of the operation of the powerful nations or weaker ones is caused by this prejudice. It dries up their fellow feeling for fellow men. So after saying that, Swamiji points out that the need for this to develop this cognitive empathy. Therefore, the one point we ought to remember is that we should always try to see the duty of others through their own eyes. That's the perspective taking and never judge the customs of other peoples by our own standard. I am not the standard of the universe. I have to accommodate myself to the world and not the world to me. So after this, Swamiji is speaking of the second challenge in practicing Karma Yoga as per our Swabhava. What is that? There is however another danger, this one great danger in human nature, namely that human never examines himself so when I am supposed to do some work, I think I am up to it. To give a common example, a student is good in all the subject and also, of course, he's good in, uh, say, biology. And he gets chance in medical college or she gets chance in medical college. And as a student, he or she must postpone is performing very well. As long as he was his knowledge was just restricted to the textbook. He found interest, it was quite well. And now when he has to go to the hospital, because after all, he or she is going to be the doctor and he finds or she finds the environment to be nauseating. Whenever he sees a sick person, sees blood. And now you will find that he has actually misjudged. Just love for the subject while reading the book doesn't enter that he's or she is going to be a doctor because he or his or her temperament is such that they cannot face the situation when someone is sick. They also start feeling sick. That hospital environment sometimes repels him or her. So it's not the textbook anymore. And then he or she feels that this was not up to my swabhava. I have actually misjudged. And that's what happens with us. This. There is, however, one great danger in human nature, namely that man never examines himself. He thinks he's quite as fit to be on the throne as the king. Everyone thinks like that. So now how to overcome the second challenge? There is no other way than to learn from the experiences of life. That's a very hard way. When we begin to work earnestly in the world, nature gives us blows right and left and soon enables us to find out our position. No matter how long uh, there's no matter, no man can long occupy satisfactorily a position for which he is not fit. 
there is no use in grumbling against nature's adjustment he who does the lower work is not therefore a lower man no man is to be judged by the mere nature of his duties but all should be judged by the manner and the spirit in which they perform them so your nature will de- decide that and we shouldn't think that such and work such and such work is greater and i should place myself there and that's why we find that all the so called dissatisfaction in our workplace is because of that that i have placed myself in some occupation which doesn't actually tune with my temperament so the, when the hobby hobby becomes our profession then that profession becomes enjoyable and that only through the experience we can learn otherwise sometimes we what we do we that bite more than we can chew and we find that we are almost incapable to deal with the challenges of that so called responsibility so once our swabhav is ascertained we have to practice nishkama karma now this now that heart should flow that with my that swami used to speak of 3h uh, synthesis of 3h head hand heart i have to be intelligent that is speaks of the head i have to be skillful that speaks of my hand and at last the karma yoga comes when the heart also gets tuned to that head and hand for most of us that heart factor is not there that even we find the doctor is quite skilled is very intelligent but at last most probably is thinking of making money only so then that can never turn into karma yoga this three should come where my personal interest is not the prime factor service is the prime factor so when according to the swabhava you have determined your duty now with a sense of nimitta as a sense of instrument in the hands of the lord you have to work that's what swami ji is saying that then the nishkama karma idea of nishkama karma has to fit in with your swabhava later we shall find that even this idea of duty undergoes change and that the greatest work is done only when there is no selfish motive to prompt it yet it is work through the sense of duty that lead us to work without any idea of duty when work will become worship as in the sense as in the case of goodwin which we are saying that work became what the worship nay something higher then will work be done for its own sake so in the last class also we were quoting this shloka of bhagavad gita yata pravrittir bhutanam yena sarvam idam tatam swakarmana whatever is your action do it in a sense of service abhyarcha tam abhyarcha that will give you siddhi that will give you emancipation siddhi vindati manava so this actually entails the annihilation of your lower self the ego when you can do in that way that's what swami ji is saying the object being the attenuating of the lower self so that the real higher self may shine forth the lessening of the frittering away of the energies of the lower plane of existence so that the soul may manifest itself on the higher ones this is accomplished by the continuous denial of the lower desires which duty rigorously requires and what's the result when with the help of your that swabhava you can annihilate the ego and do your action without any sense of personal benefit but do it with the help of service 
the three things results with Swamiji, with which we'll conclude the lecture. There's a love, forbearance, and chastity. The real love actually is what for us at the present in the human society, what love is? That what gives me happiness, that we love for my own happiness, that we love to love, that's the thing. That's why by loving others, that I find that the happiness is, that is not love, that is just simply infatuation, that is lust. In Bhagavata, this Bhagavatam, in Chaitanya Charitamrita, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is mentioning that. Atmarati Kama, that the so-called love which is defined in the, in the human society is not love. There is no sense, sense of self-sacrifice. So real love, Swamiji will define here. The duty is seldom sweet. It is only when love greases, the real love greases its wheels, then it runs smoothly. He gives no example. It is a continuous friction otherwise. How else could parents do their duties to their children, husbands to their wives and vice versa? We previously never heard that, uh, that to grow up the children is a big challenge. It was considered a very natural duty. Now you, you, the statistics is something very, very um, frightening. Most of a, a considerable amount of divorce happens after the child is born because they were not ready to be the parents. That the sacrifice which is required there, they're not ready to take. The assertion is there that I want my enjoyment. So how can love come? Even for growing up the children, we find that the parents are parting off. There are a huge number of divorce happens after the birth of the child. But this, when the real love is there, that's why Swamiji is saying, how else could parents, when the parent with the sense of love do it, in spite of all the challenges, they like it. Parents do their duties to their child, husbands to their wives and vice versa. Do we not meet with cases of friction every day in our lives? Duty is sweet only through love, where the other person's importance is more important, not me. That's, that's the real love. And love shines in freedom alone. Yet, is it freedom to be a slave to the senses, to anger, to jealousies, and a hundred other petty things that must occur every day in human life? That's what is happening. And that's the cause of all the dissension. I give so much importance to me, to my sense enjoyments, that all from that the anger, jealousy, everything comes. In all this little roughness that we meet in this life, the highest expression of freedom is to forbear. So the first sign that you love other is that love. The second is forbearance. When you can really love, you can really forbear. That forbearance is bound to come. In our life, because of too much assertion of the self, most of the time, what happens? We find the situation is, uh, the present situation is something tormenting. And we jump from the frying pan and go and fall in the oven itself. And there are separations, divorce, and then we find that life has become hell. Most probably it was better. With all the fight, it was better. It has become hell. They jump from the frying pan to the oven itself. Most of the time people try to advertise they're quite happy. But if you really don't try to fool yourself, you see your own feelings, you will find that the forbearance would have been something better. And for that, annihilation of the ego is the only thing that we can do. That's why Ramakrishna always used to say that he has his own grammar. Ramakrishna had his, has his own grammar. That in 
Sanskrit, you will find there are three sa. That one sa is with a hissing sound, one sa the tongue should touch the palate, and in another the tongue should touch the teeth. Three types of sa are there. And Ramakrishna said, you know the, why there are three types, three sa? In his own way, unique way he is to define sa, 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 jay, shoy, shay, he used to make he used, so Ramakrishna was an expert in making uh, is making pun with the words. The one who forbears in Sanskrit, shoy means the one who in, in Hindi in, in Bengali, shoy means the one who forbears. J shoy she roy. The one who forbears, he sustains himself. J na shoy. The one who doesn't forbear, tar na shoy. He destroys himself. And that's why to give importance, that emphasis to that forbearance, which in Sanskrit is sa, and there are three sa in Sanskrit. What a unique way he's explaining. So this is the forbearance, this is the second thing, chastity. All these things actually speaks of the same thing, that not my own assertion, that as a human being, we have the capacity to control our emotions with our will. And that integrates us, that the marriage is not only just for my own enjoyment, it's actually through the children, I'm bringing up the next generation. I'm serving the society, the next generation with the family. And there again, the, le the less the ego asserts, the better is a chance that you become a productive member of the society. And this love, forbearance, chastity, what else can the duty be defined as? In a family, if through the real sense of duty at last boils down, whether through your life, life, love is finding expression, forbearance is finding expression, chastity is there. That's the duty. Can any society deny that? In the present society, we find the councils are busy for this having, what you say, that uh, workshop on family violence. Why? At last, the duty bounds down to these three. Whatever may be the society, however you may, that you may say that I believe in freedom, for us the freedom has become freedom of the senses. But Swamiji is saying the real freedom is freedom from the senses, not freedom of the senses. Unless we know the real definition of freedom. And at last, every society has to come down to this. And that's the thing which Swamiji is saying is the ultimate proof of duty, that the lack of the annihilation of ego, finding expression as a love, forbearance and chastity. So with this actually ends this chapter. Uh, and th th then after that, there's a story of the Vyada Gita, which enumerates this, that how by just doing your duty, it will just take another five minutes. I will just, uh, uh, the story is very, very interesting. So that this chapter is concluded this day, we can start with the next chapter. The story goes this way, that a sannyasi, a young sannyasi was doing a lot of austerity in the forest, was meditating. And one day while meditating, he found a few dry leaves fell on his head. And he looked up on the branches and saw one crow and one crane was uh, fighting. And in the process, the, these dry twigs fell on his head. And he got so ferocious, so angry that some fire came out from his forehead and just cheered, just burned alive those two birds. They were cheered to death. Seeing that, 
the sannyasi thought, oh, see how much power I have developed out of tapasya. And with that same sense of that uh, pride, now he went out, went to the village for his begging. He was standing in front of the door of a house, of a house that was asking for alms. And from the inner apartment, a lady told, oh, sannyasi, please wait. And this sannyasi, he was, he became so haughty. He thought, oh, does this lady most probably doesn't know my power. That what can I do? And she's asking me to wait. And immediately from inside that voice came, the lady again told, well, oh, monk, it's not uh, just uh, the, 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 your power of cheering, burning to death, the crow and crane. I have some real responsible work to do. So please wait. Don't be thinking so haughtily about your power. Now the son, this monk was really surprised that how come this lady came to know about his power. So after some time when she came, this man, this monk was so surprised, asked the lady. The lady told, see, I don't know any of this tapas. My husband is sick. That's my priority. I serve him day out, day in, day out. When you called for arms, I was serving him. So that's why I told, please wait, let me serve him. And then I will come and uh, give you the arms, offer you my arms. And it is just by this service, I have developed these powers. Just by nothing, I do no tapas. Just by my service as a chaste wife, I have developed this tapas. And if you want to know more about this religion, this religion of Swabhava, you better go. I, am, I have practiced it, but I am not a good exponent. I cannot explain. So for this exponent, to, to if you want to have the explanation of it, there's a vyadha in the marketplace, a butcher. He's a butcher in the marketplace. You go to him, he's a jnani. Now this sannyasi, when he went to that marketplace, to that butcher, he was horrified that he is just selling meat, sacrificing the animal, selling, how can he teach me about spirituality? He was about to go back when that man again told, had the lady send you? He was again really surprised how this man know. So now again, he thought, let me wait. There are so many things, so many things to surprise me today. Now, after this man did his job, along he took the sannyasi to his home and again to, asked him to wait. He first went and tended on his aged parents, mother and father, took care of them, came. And then he told, see, as per my birth, this is my duty. I do it. And that also I do to sustain my parents, to take care of them. And with that, I have developed the spirituality. And then what he expounds, what he expounds is in Mahabharata known as the Vyadha Gita. This is the background of the Vyadha Gita. So this is the story Swami Vivekananda is uh, expounding at the end of this lecture to just bring out this idea that you need not have to do something apart from your uh, what has been entailed to you by your position in life. By doing that with a selfless manner, by just selfishly, with love, with forbearance, with a sense of chastity. You can know it for certain that that alone is sufficient to take you to the highest spiritual evolution. So with that, this lecture is concluded. So we stop our discussion uh, on this chapter. It's a very nice chapter as you find. We will again continue with the next chapter from the next class onwards. 
So with this, we end our discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Swamiji. Namaskar. Pranam Maharaj. Pranam Maharaj. Namaskar. Pranam Swamiji. Namaskar, Swamiji. Namaskar. Thank you.